I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. These are historic times. We have a once-in-a-century pandemic, the rise of transnational populism, new and emerging economic powers are intensifying their rivalries, and new forms of money are threatening to upend the established economic order. I get dizzy just thinking about it. So this week, I wanted to call in more reinforcements to help me piece together not just the political economy of cryptocurrencies in today's changing monetary system, but to also dig into some of the more controversial topics, like which country benefits most from digitizing their currency? And under what circumstances could a foreign central bank digital currency really topple the U.S. dollar? So I brought in the big guns this week and asked Berkeley super economist Barry Eichengreen to join the show and offer his views. Now, if you didn't know, Barry is one of the world's most famous economists. And I can't think of anyone more capable of demystifying and critiquing the global race to transform not only how we transact, but also how countries do business with their people and one another. Barry, thanks so much for joining the show. Good to be with you, Christopher. You've spent your career really tracking the rise of international currencies and indeed the the evolution of money itself, from commodity money, things you dig out of the ground like gold and silver, to fiat currencies and banknotes. When you look at all of the changes happening that are underway, how does today's impending digitization of currencies compared to past episodes where quite literally the definition of money was changing as well. The definition of money has always been changing. So if you go back 2,000 years when people were using the earliest gold and silver coins, it takes 1,000 years to get to the bill of exchange, the kind of uh, promissory notes that traded on a secondary market, the precursors to the checks that people write today or have been writing until recently. It takes then a shorter period of time to get up to to bank money and a shorter period of time, uh, again, to get to digital money. So I see the economics and the market structure of the monetary economy is constantly evolving or changing. The pace of change clearly has accelerated. It took a thousand years to get the bill of exchange. It took us a hundred years to get from bank checks to credit cards. And now the evolution to digital money is uh, occurring even faster. Those examples are are, are telling. Um, and they're also really important because they seem to suggest that the definition of money and the changes in that definition can have lots of different drivers, right? So on the one hand, it can be a technological driver from, you know, the invention of paper to, um, you know, the microchip and and plastic cards and the like. But but also it can be a, a difference that's tied to really the, the, the legal 
perhaps background surrounding um, uh, different instruments or mediums of, of, of exchange. And then sometimes it can be, uh, as you had mentioned, the, the market structure. Usually when money changes, like when, when what we conceive of as money changes, is there any particular driver that tends to be uh, more, more important than, than all the others? Historically, we've, we've always seen the process being driven by technology by changes in, in markets as communications gets better or changes in uh, institutional technology as commercial banks develop. But at the same time, we see governments, we see the state pushing back. So control of the money supply, ability to print money, what economists would call seniorage, is uh, an important resource for, for the state. It's an especially important resource in difficult times when you have a war or a pandemic, say. So the state is always trying to retain its control of what constitutes money, who provides it, how it's used, and the market, the technology, is always trying to find ways around the state. My reading of, of the long sweep of history is that we do see over time, states exerting more control and money becoming more centralized and more uniform. That uniformity, I think, has advantages uh, that people don't have to worry uh, whether Chris's money is as good as Barry's money. We all rely on the Federal Reserve's money instead. That has a certain convenience value. And uh, I, I think the convenience value and the role of the nation state have led over time to uh, government and regulators determining what is and what is not money and uh, technology continuing to challenge that and the state responding. As governments are certainly asserting themselves, they're doing so against the backdrop of an international political economy with countries seeking either to attain or preserve significance and power in the international monetary system and foreign policy. And from this perspective, does digitization or tokenization in itself or, or the prospect of upgrades to digital financial infrastructures tend to change the ways in which countries compete for dominance? What does digitization do to this thousand-year competition between nation-states looking for economic uh, or, or monetary supremacy? Digitization uh, of currencies has been going on for a long time. So for many years now, commercial banks have had accounts at the Federal Reserve. Uh, European banks have had accounts, uh, accounts at the European Central Bank. So these are wholesale accounts. They're big accounts of fin regulated financial institutions, but they exist only in cyberspace. They're digital accounts. What people are talking about now, yeah, central bank digital currency, is the idea that folks like you and me could also have an account, a retail account at the Fed. That would be an innovation, but it wouldn't be the leap from pre-digital money to digital money. We've had digital money for a long time. In, in terms of who would, who would benefit from it, the incumbent's international currency, the, the U.S. dollar, really has 
a dominant market share in terms of cross-border transactions and moving from a wholesale digital dollar where banks can digitally move dollars across borders to a retail digital dollar wouldn't affect cross-border use of the dollar very much, I think, one way or another. Uh, it's to the advantage of the countries that are seeking to catch up. Say the People's Bank of China wants a larger digital role for their currency, the renminbi, issuing a central bank digital currency and encouraging firms and banks and people to use it in cross-border transactions could give them a leg up in terms of trying to compete with the U.S. dollar on the global stage. You know, it's interesting that that, that you bring up uh, China. You, we, we recently. Uh, just had some very senior officials from the International Monetary Fund talk a bit about the the the, the attempts by China to digitize its currency and, and and potentially tokenize it. But one of the more interesting observations is that they said that the the pilot projects thus far in China appear to be projects that are geared towards not just creating a digital representation of the yuan or or of the renminbi, but it's really um, a process of creating a platform on top of which other kinds of market participants could build their own kinds of applications. So I guess the, the theory being that if the People's Bank of China wanted to get more of a market share for their currency, they could do so by, frankly, Im- improving the customer experience of holding the currency, um, of, of improving the use cases if not the number of people who are who are actively holding the renminbi. When you think about this kind of financial innovation, this, this idea that if we can take a currency and make it digital, we can ultimately program it and create all kinds of new use cases, what does this do to the story of money? And what does this do from your perspective when you look at the potential of any particular country to sort of gain market share vis-a-vis uh, legacy, uh, globally dominant currencies like the U.S. dollar? When I, when I think of money, I'm reminded of, of The Economist's definition of what money is. It's a means of payment, a store of value, and a unit of account. So I think what you're describing is the effort to create a, a, a variety of different stores of value with different combinations of safety and liquidity and return and so forth. That's a reminder that the distinction between money and other financial assets really isn't that clear-cut. They shade into one another. Uh, They can be used in transactions to varying extents with different degrees of ease, different uh, levels of liquidity, and so forth. So what your IMF friends describing these Chinese uh, uh, initiatives were saying, I think, is that China is trying to create an entire ecosystem of of monetary and financial assets around the digital renminbi and having an entire ecosystem as opposed to just digital tokenized representations of what was once paper currency will make the instrument or or this unit of denomination for transactions more attractive for users. I think that's right. 
I predict you and I will get there uh, when we talk about Libra to the same point, that the Libra Association is talking about creating smart contracts in Libra space, which are the same kind of thing. But the difference between Libra and the PBOC is that the PBOC is going to have strong control over who does what, exactly what those transact, what those instruments are. It's going to have an eye on every transaction and the identity of the people transacting, transacting so it can ensure the safety and the regulatory compliance of what goes on there. I'm not sure that's going to be true of the Libra Association. China is not the only country that's sort of experimenting uh, with uh, central bank digital currencies. Um, although, uh, from, from what we can tell, that they, they may have the loftiest ambitions, uh, particularly as pertaining to this ecosystem that you were uh, describing. When you look and survey, though, the, the different central bank digital currencies and, and frankly, the, the different fiat currencies that are out there and, and, and their relative and, uh, and comparative strengths and weaknesses, we in the United States have tended to identify a number of countries that if they were to go big, could at least create interesting questions about the stickiness of the uh, dominance of the U.S. dollar. Like, not necessarily to say that the U.S. dollar would not become dominant, but but depending on the currency and depending on what tack they would take, that dominance could be eroded to varying degrees. We've heard some whispers out of the European Central Bank that they are looking at uh, digitizing uh, the euro. Uh, certainly, the United Kingdom has been very receptive uh, towards fintechs and the, and the idea of um, some kind of distributed ledger to support uh, the pound sterling. Are, are there any countries when you sort of, or excuse me, or, or currencies that you think, if they were to go big, they could really sort of change their profile in international markets? Uh, in a way that could be perhaps more significant than others. And if that is the case, why so? You've got to be one of the big boys in order to compete with the dollar. I think really only the European Central Bank and the People's Bank of China have the scale, have the size of platform, have the volume of cross-border transactions themselves to be able to build a significant uh, market share in competition with the dollar. There are a variety of other central banks whose planning is relatively far advanced in addition to the ones you mentioned. The, the Swedish Riksbank has some of the most careful analysis and in-depth research on digitizing their currency. They've done pilot projects in Uruguay that are pretty far along. Cambodia thinks. This is a way that they can uh, uh, build a domestic uh, financial market with links to the rest of the world. So it's not ob always the obvious players, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you're going to be a niche player in this market. Maybe you can create a niche uh, hidden away from the dollar. Cambodia can become the digital currency for Southeast Asia or something like that. I don't know. But if you're talking about potential serious challengers to the dollar, you're really only talking about the euro and the renminbi. When you see countries and governments jostling to, again, stabilize their 
um, currencies, blaze through new kinds of trading relationships. I mean, China, you have the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, here in the United States, you have a sort of a rethinking of America's place and, and friends in terms of the international trading system. And then you have, obviously, this, this um, uh, process of digitizing uh, uh, currencies as part of a national uh, process of upgrading economies and making them more globally competitive. Uh, do you foresee, in, 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 say, if not the immediate term, but sort of when the crisis passes, more monetary innovation and competition occurring in a way that even the big boys, as you've noted, uh, will have to respond if for no other reason because of the rest of the world, even the, the little guys, um, uh, or because the little guys are also active. I, I do think that's the case. Even before the pandemic, there was a flurry, a tremendous amount of activity in the digital fintech space that was already forcing uh, established central banks and other financial entities to innovate or die. So the uh, main uh, organization that clears international cross-border transactions is called SWIFT, the Society for Worldwide uh, International Financial Transactions based in Belgium. Uh, they traditionally take several days to clear a transaction and they charge a fee. They were experimenting with blockchain. They were experimenting with, with alternative digital platforms even before the pandemic because they saw that they could be disintermediated by, say, Ripple, a private company in San Francisco that promised to do the same thing for uh, commercial bank customers. So I think that process was underway. and because more people are going to be doing more things online and there's going to be more investment in, in those kind of innovations going forward, that that process will accelerate more, how should I put it, if and when the pandemic is passed. When you look around the world, countries are taking on a tremendous amount of, of debt um, in order to uh, stabilize their economies in the midst of a global pandemic. What does this sort of debt accumulation mean in the context of sort of this race to digitize currencies? In other words, is, is there, are there repercussions or any kinds of policy implications that could inform digitization and or tokenization efforts by central banks? Um, and, and, and is there any kind of sort of policy overlap between today's monetary policy and the sort of technological strategy and build-out that some countries may be planning or thinking through? Well, one thing that we clearly see is that more people are doing more business online. So people used to uh, using bills and coins, typically older people, uh, are, are moving online to do their financial transactions. So uh, digital currencies are not going to be as foreign to them as they were before the current pandemic. Then there's the question about of whether all this debt accumulation uh, augurs inflation in the future. And if U.S. dollars are doomed to lose their value because of inflation or because central banks are taking interest rates into negative territory, 
people will have an incentive uh, to, to move out of national currencies and into something else. And that brings us back again to the possibility, which I personally think is a low probability event, that people will move out of, out of uh, national currencies, central bank currencies, into private label currencies. Possible, but in my view, not likely. Do you see at any point in time private, or I should say non-governmental cryptocurrencies of some sort or digital assets um, uh, posing a threat uh, or, or, or really challenging, if not the U.S. dollar, than, than other very uh, established currencies? You know, I, I guess from that perspective, you can divide the world up. One is, uh, you know, your, your, your cryptocurrencies like uh, Bitcoin, and then we can get into the, the questions posed by um, stable coins uh, that are, I guess, epitomized for the moment in uh, Libra's um, efforts. But w- when you think about things like a, like a Bitcoin or an Ether, interestingly enough, they too were born in an age in which we find ourselves now, which is an age where governments are are taking on uh, more more debt uh, in order to operate in and navigate through different financial crises. And there was this sort of vision that sort of a a non-state-backed cryptocurrency provides the means and and discipline of, frankly, of of earlier ages, of of the golden age, of, of, of the gold standard. Under what circumstances could you ever see a cryptocurrency gaining real international relevance from the standpoint of uh, central bankers and policymakers. If we're talking about uh, cryptocurrency that is not tethered, to coin a phrase, to any national currency, uh, a Bitcoin-like unit, my answer, alas, would be never. Uh, Bitcoin and its rivals, if they're going to be safe havens in difficult times, ought to have strengthened enormously in this pandemic. They haven't exactly acted as safe havens in that sense. They're volatile. They're not reliable stores of value. And they create uh, compliance problems for regulators and governments who apply know-your-customer rules to other asset markets, and they worry that these units will be used for money laundering and tax evasion and worse. So one issue is regulation aside, do these uh, cryptocurrencies display the stability and liquidity needed to compete with uh, nationally issued money? Not obviously. And then the second question becomes, even if they did, would regulators let them? Well, that's certainly a question that Facebook and, and, and the Libra Association have had to come to terms with. There you see a different tack, uh, both in the initial rollout of a kind of a synthetic cryptocurrency and now in their sort of white paper 2.0, a more modest approach. Do you see the possibility then, if not from a kind of Bitcoin uh, decentralized platform approach, some kind of other large company that has a built-in messaging system, you know, uh, which is obviously important for any kind of cross-border transaction, um, to come to the scene. If not Facebook, then some other, uh, again, uh, association or conglomerate to issue um, a, a private 
currency uh, modeled perhaps in many ways after what we saw in, 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 in Libra. Um, and again, uh, uh, do the circumstances necessary for that kind of project to become some kind of challenge or threat to established international fiat currencies, do those circumstances differ dramatically from what would be necessary for, for, for Bitcoin? Or do you think it would be easier than would be the case for decentralized currencies? I could, could imagine that uh, if not Facebook, another entity, think Amazon, for example, would issue Amazon dollars and accept payment in Amazon dollars and allow people to transfer amongst themselves Amazon dollars. If Amazon dollars were stably linked to US dollars, and if they were only used for payments, if Amazon dollars were like PayPal dollars, which already exist, although PayPal dollars are not, not differentiated from, they're not given a name separate from US dollars. I could imagine going one more step and having a unit, a, a, a digital piece of paper with Jeff Bezos's face on it rather than George Washington's face. But only if those units were used explicitly for payments, because once you get beyond the, the payment sphere where you have smart contracts and financial derivatives, all of a sudden you have a host uh, of financial stability issues. And at that point, governments and regulators crack down and say, no more of this. I've read a lot of your work, and particularly as it pertains to, to Libra, and I see that even in its more modest iteration, you've sounded at least some alarms or, or, or concerns about the project, uh, especially when it comes to uh, financial stability uh, issues. Uh, what do you see now, uh, even where this project, uh, which was really sort of trying to create a basket of currencies to back this Libra cryptocurrency, and and now kind of out of a strategic retreat, uh, is announcing that it's going to rely primarily on um, a stablecoin linked to, uh, in a one-to-one relationship to different uh, fiat currencies. Uh, what do you see as, as the major uh, financial stability issues? Number one, there's the question of the capital buffer that Libra white paper 2.0 describes. This is kind of the extra reserve that the Libra Association will hold that uh, can be dispersed as needed to protect against uh, threats to financial stability. We don't know how big that capital buffer will be. We don't know how it will vary with the business cycle, with the financial cycle. We don't know who will pay for it, who will contribute it uh, to it, uh, out of what revenues. So we still don't know what its properties are. There's reason to think that a modest capital buffer won't be adequate to deal with uh, run on a certain set of smart contracts. If, if people lose confidence that they will be worth the digital paper that they're written on tomorrow. So there will be no Libra lender of last resort. I think those are, in a way, the, the fundamental issues that, that still have to be addressed there. What is your personal view, Barry, about all of these new digital assets? I mean, you know, when, when you look 
and um, say Bitcoin and Ether, or whether or not you look at Libra. And then, you know, when you look at the basket of, of central bank digital currencies, do you view these kinds of innovations as being positive or netted out? Do you view them as, as introducing more financial instability and, and, and problems, um, not just for, for regulators, but also for markets and consumers? Personally, my life has been made much easier over the last decade or decades by digital innovation. So I can pay bills online. I can do mutual fund transactions online. I can do a host of, of things related to money digitally online at vastly improved levels of convenience and, and ease compared to what I might have had to do on the phone in a conversation with another human being only during business hours 20 years ago. But at the same time, I, I, I can recognize that and I can be skeptical that digital currencies like cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have the stability and transparency to compete with money. I can be skeptical that stable coins will be forever stable or that they can be created without giving rise to other regulatory issues. And I can worry that central bank digital currency, it may be convenient to open a retail account for every individual at the central bank, but then the central bank digital currency also becomes a rich target for hackers and terrorists and others. Maybe the costs of a central bank digital currency from that point of view are greater than the benefits. Uh, so personally, I'm happy by advance, about advances in digital technology and how they've affected my monetary and financial life. But I can at the same time be skeptical about whether stable coins and, and uh, cryptocurrency have a future. Barry, thanks so much for making it onto the show. My pleasure. Thank you. The world is changing, unleashing new forms of economic competition that could end up radically reshaping monetary policy. And the driver for such changes will be technology intermediating ages-long competition between not only governments for economic supremacy, but also between the private sector and the nation state. Now, you'll need more than a crystal ball to know just where this all ends up, and the future, like these battles for economic supremacy, is still very much up for grabs. The only thing that is certain is that we're going to have to brace ourselves with the reality of having to once again grapple with what money means as this competition plays out and as societal needs change. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.